Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I don't want to have like a foodie kid. I think that like there's something a little precious about these sort of slightly adultified like look at my three-year-old whose favorite food is uni kind of situations. Like also that child is like wearing a fedora or something. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Helen Rosner returns to the Taste Podcast, and I couldn't be happier. Helen is a journalist, Twitter commentator, and a staff writer covering food at The New Yorker. Now, I wanted to have Helen in to talk about some of her recent stories, including writing about roasting duck at home, the Chicago-style hot dog, and the busy fall cookbook season. But I mostly wanted to catch up with one of my oldest friends from food media. I really hope you enjoy this fun conversation with Helen Rosner. Helen Rosner, welcome to Taste Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Helen Rosner, welcome back to the Taste Podcast, actually. I'm going to say that. It's true. I feel like it's like being a returning SNL host or something. It's a a great honor for me to have been invited into your studio not once but twice. Absolutely. I'd love to have you back again and again and again because journalism is always moving. Um, I I do not mute you on Twitter anymore. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the last time I was like, no offense, but I muted you, but I read you like a digest. Yeah, I, I used to be a really high volume <laughs> tweeter, and I um, have consciously taken a pretty significant step back from that in the last year or two. <laughs> no, I I love when you when you tweet, and, and I, I actually meant that as full respect in in episode thirty five back in December twenty eighteen when we talked last on the mic. We talk often, you know, off mic, but um, I think uh, your Twitter account was such a pleasure to read, and it still is. Thank you. There's not as much there as there used to be. But, you know, I think um, Twitter is different and I'm different and the world is different. And I think the outlet that I got from just the sort of like logoreic vomiting that I would do into that box landed very differently in a world four years ago than it does now. I think for for everybody, I think Twitter is like, you know, metastasized and changed and grown Mm. and I don't know. It was it was different when I had like a small number of followers and now somehow I truly do not understand how this happened. I have an obscenely large number of followers, yeah. which is terrifying and paralyzing and is part of why I've decided that um I save the really good stuff for my group chats. Yeah. <laughs> and you and you you actually have more of it maybe more intention when you when you're tweeting because I wanted to ask you about a Twitter thread that you published on your 40th birthday, oh. which I, I I love so much of your writing, and we'll talk about your work at The New Yorker, um, but I do want to talk to you about this thread, which was, the fi- I think, the best thing you wrote all year, in my opinion. Oh, thank you. It was things you've learned in your first yeah. 40 years. I believe very strongly that Twitter 
as a medium is at its best when it is improvisational. Like I know there's a lot of people who sort of like pre-write out their Twitter threads mm-hmm. and will compose it. And I think that for me, at least, a lot of the fun is being extemporaneous, kind of like talking to you right now. Like it's like sitting, it, it, it lights up those channels in my head yep, that are yep. like much more conversational rather than writerly. And I remember, so I wrote this thread as I published each tweet um, on my 40th birthday back in January while I was sitting at... Bonnie's, the restaurant yeah. in Greenpoint, the like oh, not the one in Park Slope, not to no, be confused. No, 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 the, the incredible Canton, like modern Cantonese restaurant, amazing. Like, um, and uh, with like sitting across the table from my husband in in that sort of loving way that couples who've been together for a really really long time can just stare at their phones while they're eating a meal, and it's okay. Yeah, you know. Oh, yeah, me and Tamara, we, we do it. We've done it. We do I it. sometimes want to wear, like, a sign on my shirt or something that's like, no, no, we are very much in love. We just go to restaurants a lot. Yeah. And we talk all the time, and sometimes we just need to look at our phones while sharing a meal. But, um, yeah, you know, it was, I think, if I can say the most obvious thing in the entire world, the two and a half years of the pandemic were incredibly fucking weird, mm-hmm. right, for everybody in every way. And I think one of the ways in which it was weird for me and for people kind of of my specific cohort is that, you know, when I started reading about the coronavirus, like when it started entering our consciousness, I was 37, which, you know, if anybody listening is younger than that, they're going to be like, oh, that's so old. Mm. But like (laughs) 37 is not that old, right? Like you're solidly and you're kind of on the cusp of like mid 30s to late 30s. You're in young adulthood. And all of a sudden... On the other end of it, I was turning 40, which felt so heavy and so grown up. Oh, my God. Do you remember your parents' 40th birthdays? Yes, Which was like, oh, my God, over the hill, which we don't use anymore, but that was like the lexicon. Yeah. Over the hill. It is now the slide down to death, right? Like, it was (laughs) like you have 40 years going up the hill and 40 years going down the hill. Yeah, if you're lucky, right, back there in the 80s and 90s, yeah. (laughs) And, like, you know, it felt all of a sudden like I had gone from being, like— young and hopeful and energetic and full of promise to like solidly an adult, like a grown up freaking adult. And it was kind of strange. You know, I mean, like, look, base 10 is a totally arbitrary way for us to decide like when we enter the eras of our lives. But I did feel very much like I wanted to in some way mark the transition, I don't know. Yeah, with, with some with art, with, with writing, and you wrote that off the dome, which is I, I thought it was pre-written, but I love to hear this little chestnut. And one of them, I only want to go over two because I'm going to link to in the show notes the app, the thread itself, and I really recommend it. Um, one, uh, if you're stuck in a frustration loop with someone, change the medium. Call if you mostly text. Email if you mostly call. I. What is that? Oh, yeah. Well, so a lot of these were things that I've, like, learned, right? I mean, I guess the idea was, like, these are things that I've learned. And it wasn't 40. Like, don't worry, anybody who's, like, overwhelmed (laughs) by this. It was just, like, stuff. It was stuff. It was, like, 12 or 20. Yeah, like, it was just things that I felt like were really important lessons that I wished I had known sooner. But I had to learn by, like, slogging through them and doing them. So, yeah, this was just one of those weird communication things that totally changed my life when I sort of finally internalized it, which is, if you're having a frustrating interaction with somebody and you change the medium, even if you say exactly the same things, like if I'm having, a, if I'm trying to say something to you verbally and you're not hearing mm-hmm. it, if I literally write those exact words down, in kind of the same way that I was saying that that Twitter lights up those channels in my brain that feel much more conversational than writerly, like I literally think like neurologically, it goes down some. Di- I'm terrible at writing. Like I'm a professional writer and I am <laughs> so bad at it. Like, you mean the act of writing? The act of writing. Yeah. I have horrible chronic writer's block. I get really paralyzed. My editors are constantly mad at me. You write on your phone mostly, right? 
I used to. I've been moving a little bit away from that. But I do have a lot of tricks that I do to yeah. try to, you know, convince myself I'm not actually writing. You write in the inbox, the email I inbox? definitely do that. I do that yeah, all the time. I love it's, that. It's essential. you got to write in the inbox. But this is the same idea, right? It's that, like, if you and I are having a frustrating interaction or if I'm, like, you know, trying to get something across to, like, a friend or a coworker or my parents or somebody with whom it is really important that I have successful communication – just changing the medium changes it for both of us. Mm-hmm. It changes how I say it. It changes how you hear it or receive it. And it was just like a phenomenal thing. It was like realizing this in my life was like watching the sunrise. Just like why do we have to keep shouting back and forth metaphorically or literally when we can write back and forth yep. or we can text or we can call or we can see each other face to face like so the, often. Handwritten letter if, if needed, uh, you know. I think that has like a lot of emotional gravity right. to it. Like there's something a little performative to I'm me glad about you like the handwritten letter. Because that but, is a little bit of a signal to maybe things are But I do think weird. like, you know, if you're having like a frustrating phone call with someone, say, you know what, like this is I think getting like a little bit away from us. Let me put a recap into an email and let's check it out there. And then we can just make sure we're not talking past each other. It's just a— Absolutely essential. I I love that tip. The other one I wanted to talk to you about is related to food. Be the friend who makes a decisive call when everyone else is waffling about what to eat. Well, yeah. Somebody has to make a decision. Otherwise, everyone's going to be miserable. And I think that, um, you know, there's the the cliché of— the group of people who like, it's like, no, well, what do you want? No, I'm good with anything. Like, oh, no, like, that's not helpful to anybody. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think it's helpful to have no preferences. I think in any context, actually, it is unhelpful to refuse to supply a parameter when you have been asked to. And um, especially when it comes to like a group decision. Like Let's role play for a second yeah. because I want to get the tone of, of it because I think it's all about the way you, you say it and yes. the tone of, of – so we're, all, we're sitting around a table and there's a big menu and we're all kind of like, eh, small plates. I think the bolognese, eh, do you want to share? How would you jump into this conversation? So I'm like, let me be – I'm going to be like, okay, like, like carne asada for the table and maybe chilaquiles, Helen. Eh. Yeah. I mean, well, so, okay, I think there are two different levels on which this operates. The first is what you're talking about, which is when we're faced with a menu and we're trying to decide how to order. And in that case, I am a huge proponent of somebody being, like, the captain, right? Like, there's four to ten of us at a table. Somebody's got to take charge. And the captain can – you can have a number one, right? Like, you can have a captain and a commander, right? You can have your Picard. You can have your Riker. But Mm -hmm. somebody has to say, here is where we're going, and I'm going to get us there. And I feel like often that is me. But I always love it when it's not. Like, there's something so wonderful. About- so much. I'm the same way. Yeah. I, people look to me often, and I, I'm, like, great, and I'll do it. But, yeah, it's nice not to have to order. Yeah, to, like, be a menu sub, right? To, like, give up all the control. <laughs> but, um, but you know, you need to, like, look at the menu and be like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to share a bunch of apps. We're going to get way too many. So there's five of us at this table. We're going to get, like— seven small plates and then we're going to get two entrees and here's what we're going to get and we're going to get this 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 and this and like you know you can like leave a little bit of room for someone to say oh no like I really want to make sure we get the mac and cheese or whatever it might be and then you rattle all this off to the server and then you say is there anything really important that we're missing bingo love that advice so good yeah like bring them into the conversation yeah bring the expert the person who works there or like does this make sense I was somewhere recently I can't remember which restaurant and and we you know, I was with a group of four, and, and it was actually four food people. So we all were the captain, which is a little <laughs> bit of a crisis of leadership. But at least there was too much decisiveness, like not too little. And, uh, and like, 
you know, we turn it over to the server and she was like, well, like, you know, you got these two dishes and they both come with the same French fries and they both come with the same salad. So maybe only get one of them. I mean, they're, the the service staff are your allies and your friends. So Absolutely. Let's talk about ordering a, a bottle versus glasses. How do you get it? Like that whole thing always, like, I don't drink, but I, I've been in that situation where it gets to be like a little bit like, do you want glasses or, or bottles? Do you have a strategy oh. there? I don't know. I think you just sort of take a poll. Like, if you've got four people who would each have a glass, you should get a bottle. It always, right. But then you end up seeing four by the glass and it's like, oh my God. Yeah. I don't Stressful. know. I, I, um, I have not been drinking for a number of months now because yeah. I'm pregnant. Um, though, you know, I, you can have like an occasional glass of wine. And I was out a few nights ago at La Roque, the new amazing French oh, yeah. grocery over in New Frenchette, Frenchette 2.0. It's so good. Yeah. Um, so the sommelier there, Jorge Riera, is like a genius and he's this like natural, natural wine god. And, uh, he came over to take the wine order. And so the three people at the table who were not me and not pregnant got a bottle. And then I said to him, I think like my favorite thing I've ever said to a psalm ever, which was, you know, I, I'm I'm quite pregnant. You can't see me because this is a <laughs> podcast, but like I am gravid. And um, and I said to him, like sort of gesturing at my extremely large stomach, I get to have one glass of wine tonight. I want it to be the best glass of wine in the world. <laughs> and he was like, I got you. Like, and just like did just, not flinch. No, he was uh, like, I totally have this. And like you're only getting this like, you know, once or, or if you're pregnant again, twice. But it's a very this is a very fleeting thing. So, wow. What was that one glass of wine? It was like? great. It was um, it was a really sort of like minerally flinty orangish wine that had some sediment and some weirdness. And I like really weird wines. I'm I. I like natural wine in the sense that I like weird wine, but mm-hmm. I don't like buy into the kind of culty stuff of it. But you know, it was it was a wine that sort of sometimes tasted like a beer and sometimes tasted like a cider and sometimes tasted a little bit like, you know, wine that somebody had like left in their hot garage for a while. Oh, yeah. It was just like it was like fucky and strange mm-hmm. and totally perfect and it also had enough like I think when you're drinking wine by the glass, if you want to only have one glass of wine, whether or not you are pregnant, it's helpful for that to be a wine that's kind of difficult and interesting enough that the glass can last. Absolutely like, agree. Like it's the same as idea the as, temperature uh, rises, it doesn't lose its interest. Or, yeah, know, yeah, but it's also I think the same idea as like sipping a glass of, of scotch neat, mm-hmm. where the spirit is so intense and so astringent that you have to sip it. Like you shouldn't be gulping, mm-hmm. you know, perfect you know, 18-year-old peated whiskey, right? And so it extends its drinking time. And I think in the same way, having one glass of wine that can last for 20 or 30 minutes requires a glass of wine that has a degree of, like, complexity makes it sound so fancy, but, like, and difficulty makes it sound unapproachable, but, mm-hmm. like, a, a weird glass of wine, like, not something crushable, right? Crushable. You want something that's the opposite of crushable. Yeah. Well, so you want something, you like, can... jammy versus fresh. You want something, like, Way I don't I can't believe I just said that. Oh my god, <laughs> this is not going to be edited out. <laughs> I just can't believe we're talking about wine. I think it's literally impossible to talk about wine without sounding like a huge asshole. You know who Alice Fearing had her on oh. the show? 
She can do it. She can do it. It's it's really hard to not sound like that, but Elsevierian can do it. No, there was a point in that dinner so the other guys at the table ordered this really beautiful bottle of white wine that was like a classical kind of like perfect French. I think it was like a white burgundy or something crazy like that. And um, I, I snuck a sip of my husband's glass at the oh. beginning, and it was like a lovely white wine. And then maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, I had another sip, and I I said like, like a douche, like a monster. I should just be like punished for this. Just without even thinking about it, I was like, oh, it's opened into something so incredibly floral. Oh my goodness. And I was just like, I hate myself so deeply. <laughs> Do you think somebody's moment. looking down from the heavens and just like, like, was like oh. a, up, 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 or wherever, maybe wherever you believe in it was, so, there was like, a, there's definitely a commentary in your life happening somewhere. Like, what is it about wine yeah. that makes it so impossible to talk about without sounding like the worst yeah. person on earth? The big X uh, entered the picture. Um, I want to talk about your New Yorker writing. Um, so much, you know, you write in different formats, you write about food and home cooking and restaurants and cookbooks, but you also sometimes go to Harry Styles concerts, which which I thought, I love that. I hope that when you return from parental leave, you can do more of that. I think that's fun. It's so fun. Yeah, I do those with the photographer, Dina Latovsky, and she takes these yeah. incredible portraits of people, and then I get to do sort of man-on-the-street interviews with them, and we've done, I don't know, a ton at this point, I think, like eight or nine over the last couple of years, and it's just a delight. They're really fun to read, and and I love her I love her vision and her, her voice uh, with the camera. But let's talk about some specific stories. Uh, when in doubt, roast a duck. Mm. It's it's cool that you're talking about duck and making it home in the duckiest version of roast duck possible. Okay, so what what caused you? It made you write this piece. What made me write this piece was I made a duck, and then <laughs> I was like, this was. Duck is a really intimidating ingredient, I think, for a lot of people. I think that, you know, in some cultures, it's an everyday type of meat Mm -hmm. but in american culture certainly it's sort of a like luxury or specialty edible animal and um a lot of that is because of the huge weight i think of the french style of cooking duck where you want to have like the breast be rare but you maybe confit the legs and it's kind of a complicated thing it's not it's not like bung it in the oven like a roast chicken and just no. Duck Larange has like a, a lacquer on it with a very complex saucing technique, and of course the two ways to do it, right? Right, and like you know, within like Chinese cuisine, if you're going to do like like pecking duck, that yeah. involves like a really complex drying process for the skin and things like that. And the truth is that duck is a hugely. I mean, there are a variety of types of ducks, but like it's a really really forgiving bird, and you can actually just chuck it in the oven, kind of like a roast chicken, and let it cook all the way through. And if you cook it. At a low enough temperature, the whole thing kind of confies in its own fat because mm-hmm. ducks, uh, they have tremendous amounts of fat between the skin and the muscle because they're waterfowl. And the whole idea is that you want the, the fat to render very, very slowly. And then the meat kind of braises in its own fat. And then the skin gets super crackly. And the breast is not going to be rare. You're not going to have that beautiful, like, movey, medium rare duck breast. Mm-hmm. But who cares? Because it's the most delicious thing in the freaking world. It's like almost like carnitas or something. And it's just, you know, it's it's not a cheap meat. Like, I think that's also part of why it's not super accessible. But you're saying it's flexible scene, and like you're not going to like burn it or like dry it out. It's it's and, and let's talk about low temperature. Uh, just take us through like a low. What does low temp mean? And what is the timing of duck? Like, know. like, is it like 300 yeah. or 350? Now, is it even lower? Yeah. I mean, I think if I'm remembering right, I think that what I do and mine is based on. 
the version of this that I do is based on a recipe in the Dean and DeLuca cookbook yeah. by David Rosengarten, which to my mind is one of the great cookbooks of all time. Um, I think it was published in the late 90s, and it's just like this perfect encapsulation of the kind of very global, slightly yuppie Dean and DeLuca mm. cooking style that is really kind of coming back. I mean, they invented specialty food in many ways. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, it is yuppie cooking, but they're the ones, I mean, who in the, in the late eighties who are selling that shit. I mean, if you want to, if you want to have this sort of eighties, nineties culinary revival, just at your fingertips, basically you need the Dean and DeLuca cookbook and you need the silver palette cookbook. Oh yeah. You are just set. And to read about it, United States of Arugula by David Camp. Yes. Oh my God. That that book book. is incredible. It's such a great book. Sorry. Yeah. No, but so the David Rosengarten recipe, he basically has you prick like use the tines of a fork to prick the skin of the duck all over the place, like top and bottom all over because you want some of the fat to run and you you also don't want the duck to explode from water getting trapped under the skin. And um, you just throw it in the oven at, what is it? Like, I want to say it's like 225 or it's 250. Low. It's really low. Yeah. And you do it for between four and five hours. And every half hour to 45 minutes, you kind of take the duck out. You re-prick the skin because the skin kind of closes up as it starts cooking. You rotate it so the bottom is, the breast is down, the breast is up, the back is down, the back is up. And you're effectively replicating the experience of a rotisserie when you do that in Mm -hmm. a home oven. And then after, you know, however many hours, you have this gorgeous thing. Like, it is bronzed and glossy. Your home smells unreal. You have a pan full of not really as much rendered duck fat as you might expect because of how doing this really like low and slow really incorporates all of it into mm-hmm. the meat. And then the duck is falling apart, yeah. just like like physically insubstantial. Like you touch it and it collapses. I mean, it's all dark meat bird. I mean, yeah. everyone, like even the breast meat is is seemingly dark meat, right? It's Yeah, it's dark meat. And so it's super, super flavorful. It's really intense. Like I, I don't know about you, but, like, I, I am really obsessed with chicken stock. Like, I love mm-hmm. it. It is my favorite culinary substance on earth. I would drink it by the gallon. Hmm. And what I love about it is when it's really concentrated. And I think that, like, duck on its own tastes like you put five chickens together, yeah. like, and compress them. I we mean, talked about just... double stock in a previous in our, <laughs> in a previous episode. You are double stock hive. I have a limited <laughs> repertoire of talk, topics. I love it. No, <laughs> no, no. no. Like... I, uh, let's, let's talk about Chicago because um, – uh, you written you wrote about the Chicago style hot dog. Now my father and my uncle are from Rogers Park North Side, uh, and you wrote, uh, "No ketchup is not one unbreakable rule of a true drag through the garden Chicago dog." So I'm like, "Okay, ketchup is okay, Helen Rosner." So, if I could slightly correct you, I think I said, "No ketchup is not the one unbreakable." Rule. Okay. Um, you are correcting me correctly, and I was trying to you know, lead the witness a bit. <laughs> um, and this was just me maybe doing a little bit of rhetorical sleight of hand because the the point I was trying to make in this piece was that people talk about ketchup as like sort of the end-all, be-all rule of all Chicago hot dog consumption, and that's not the case. Like any more than saying, you know, the only thing that matters on – like a fish taco is the cabbage or the or like iceberg. Yeah. You can never have iceberg lettuce on a fish taco. <laughs> like, Good call. no, there's there's a lot happening here. There are lots of rules. There, the Chicago style hot dog specifically is an incredibly ritualized food, um, which I think is fun. I think that like it's fun to kind of be an asshole about certain foods, especially when they have like these really complex, very specific preparations. Um, saying there's no ketchup on a Chicago dog is like saying there should be no guacamole on 
you know, Hawaiian style pizza. <laughs> like it's just not in the recipe. Yeah. And I think people get really attached to it because culturally Americans are so connected to the idea of a hot dog with, with ketchup. ketchup, which is like the New York style dog. Right. Always has ketchup in like movies and in like pop culture, it seems. And it doesn't have to. Right. Definitely like I not. think that the Chicago style dog is really rooted in like you know, Central European, like German, like this is a sausage with mustard on it kind of thing. And then all these pickly vegetables and fresh vegetables ended up getting added in the 1920s by these street vendors to kind of bulk it out and turn it into a meal. And then it has become something that is almost totemic in its specificity, like these specific ingredients in this specific order in this specific way. And ketchup just isn't part of it. And I think making the conversation about ketchup this is a little bit circular, I guess, but making the making the conversation about ketchup centers something that has no bearing on it whatsoever. Yeah. We should not ever talk about ketchup when we're talking about a Chicago style. I agree hot fully. Dog. Thank you for clarifying. And I, I think it's just like one of those topics that uh, is just really easy to hang on a little bit. Like it's like <laughs> one condiment or the other. Well, the truth is, I think that ketchup does have a place on a hot dog. I think ketchup on a hot dog is really, really delicious, especially if it's with like sweet relish. Um, I just don't think it belongs on a Chicago style hot dog. And and I have to ask you: Is there another food that you've thought about in a similar way that's like a highly traditional or or highly ritualized food that has a lot of different components to it, uh, like the Chicago dog dragged through the garden that you want to maybe explore at some point? Oh, you know, one of my great obsessions is the Italian hoagie or the Italian hero, which I think in a lot of ways is similar to the Chicago dog as like a cultural artifact. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the proud granddaughter of the owner of an Italian deli in New Haven, Connecticut that is no longer in existence. But, you know, I grew up in a in a mostly kosher-keeping Jewish home that nevertheless involved a lot of exceptions to eat Italian sandwiches that are the least kosher thing on earth. It's like pork products and, <laughs> and cheese. I was like doing the math like, okay. <laughs> but like, you know, my dad would take me to these like Italian grocery stores and Italian delis and he grew up working in his dad's store mm-hmm. and like we ate these sandwiches and they are the perfect sandwich, right? Like the layers of like mortadella, capicola, like the provolone, the oil and vinegar. The, and, mm. and there are similarly to the Chicago style hot dog. I mean, I don't think it's quite as codified, but it is still one of those foods where, you know, people will argue about like, does it have mayonnaise on it or not? Right. Like, do you do a mayo? I talk about it a lot with my uh, sister-in-law, Maya, who runs a, a pizzeria in a, a deli style restaurant in North Jersey. I put mayo on mine. I kind of love mayo on I it. I kind of always put mayo on it. Yeah. Because it's it's the best. Yeah. I make a um, sort of like a jardinera mayo. So jardinera, yes. like the great Chicago pickled condiment. Yeah. It's like a lot of cauliflower, a lot of carrots, a lot of like celery and hot pepper. And like you blitz that in a food processor with some mayo and you get this kind of chunky, pickly spread. Mm. Like there, that is the hoagie spread of my dreams, you know? And then other people just like their eyes will bug out of their head and their ears will start bleeding. And they're like, how dare you? This can only have oil and vinegar. I know. And I feel like, I don't know, it depends on the bread, right? Like if it's a drier bread, maybe you want more mayo. But I I think there's more flexibility in an Italian sub. I agree. I, I think the bread is always kind of a little drier than like a focaccia or an oil, olive oil based bread. So yeah. you're always kind of need that extra fat. Yeah. That's I my, totally my argument for may- right. mayonnaise on a, a hoagie. Do you put jardinera on pizza? I don't think I've ever tried that, but that sounds terrific. Chicago thin crust tavern style. And Steve Delinsky and I talked about it in a previous episode. Yeah. That sounds real good. Sausage and jardinera. Tavern wow. style Chicago pie. You know, there's a bagel place not far from my apartment in Brooklyn, Greenberg's Bagels. Yeah. And they do a breakfast sandwich that's a... Like a bacon, or not a bacon, egg and cheese, a sausage, egg, and cheese with jardinera, and it's Ooh. 
unfucking real. Can That's, I say fuck? It you is can say such it. a good Especially breakfast. Especially when it sandwich. talks about jardinera, you can say fuck. If like an everything bagel, double sausage, American Oof. cheese, a perfect, perfect scrambled egg, and then just like enough jardinera to kind of wake you up. I've been thinking a lot about Chicago recently in the past. I guess the pandemic makes us think about a lot of things about childhood, about, you know, Because you're from the Chicago diaspora, right? You're from Michigan. I am from Michigan, where I was raised, but my mom's from Detroit, and my dad grew up in Rogers Park on the north side, so I have a lot of family in Chicago. But, I, I, you know, Chicago food has always been in my life. So I've been thinking about roots and, like, Chicago foods that maybe— uh, have been overlooked, and you know we're gonna go a hundred percent FX TV show free episode of the Taste Podcast. Gonna okay, s- just say that. Just I love that show, but yeah. we've talked about it too much. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> Anyways, is there a food in Chicago that you think uh, needs a little bit more shine? So the Jim Shoe is this classic Chicago sandwich that I think even a lot of people in Chicago might not realize. Like it hasn't broken through the way an Italian beef or a Chicago hot dog has, but it is essentially a fusion of. An Italian beef, a quintessential Chicago sandwich involving like thin sliced hot beef, jardinera, as we were just talking about. And I, you know what? Every time I say this word, I say it the wrong way because there's 17 different ways to say it. And a, a gyro or euro sandwich, which is also a classic Chicago food because there's such a great gyro food East Coast, euro Midwest. Right. So, like, you know, and I am a Midwesterner who now lives in the East Coast, so I just don't say the word. I just gesture at the sign. <laughs> but um, it's basically a fusion of those two sandwiches. So you have on the same nice. roll thin sliced Italian beef, jardinera, euro or gyro meat, tzatziki, lettuce, tomato. It's like a crazy mashup sandwich. And I fucking love it. Is it pita? No, no, I think it's on a it's on a hoagie roll. It's on a hoagie roll. Oh my god, I got to check that. Was there a, is there a place that comes to mind in Chicago that no. you can get it at? It can be anywhere. It's there's like a handful of places yeah. and you know the truth is I haven't spent a lot of time in Chicago in the last couple of years because of the pandemic, but you know, it's it's one of those places where I feel like the sandwich is kind of dying out a little bit. These yeah. these like Chicago style grills like as memorably demonstrated on the show The Bear, right? Like, sorry for bringing up No, there. I love The Bear. I was, like, it was kind of a joke. <laughs> but the like, Bear's great. You know, this this style of restaurant is so specific to Chicago, and I feel like this kind of mashup sandwich is very specific to that kind of place. And I'm a little bit surprised that some of the, like, higher end, that, like, Paul Kahn, right, like, Chicago's mm. great restaurateur, has not brought the gym shoe into, like, Publican or something like that. Yeah. Like, has, like, not just sort of put, like, a little bit of a like, cool bougie spin on it. Mm-hmm. But it's that's a really fun one. And then, of course, the other great Chicago sandwich that flies under the radar is the Hibarito. It's, it's, so it's, it's a Mexican-style torta, but instead of being made on, like, torta bread, it's between two patties of smashed, thin, like, crispy, sweet plantains. Okay, Helen, asking for nobody but also asking for everybody, did they really discontinue the Choco Taco? The reason I bring it up with you is that it was this extremely online thing that happened, and... I'm so cynical about this shit because it, it feels so pre-calculated from the brand. Here's why I think they did. Um, and this actually goes back to Chicago. So there's this phenomenal Chicago food writer, Dennis Lee. Do you know his work? Dude, fart sandwich? Are you kidding He's me? The best. I had lunch with Dennis like this past summer. He's the I greatest guy. He's a genius. Great guy. Everything he does is incredibly brilliant. He scooped this. He, he discovered sure this. And he discovered it not because he got some like big like RIP the Choco Taco press package from Good Humor or whoever makes it. He literally was just like on their website or something and noticed that they didn't list the Choco Taco anymore. And he called them up and he was like, guys, what's up with this? And they were they were trying to ghost the Choco Taco. <laughs> and Dennis, like pure 
investigative journalism chops. He like spotlighted this, right? He was like, yeah. no, I'm going full Pulitzer. And like he got them to say on the record, no, we're killing the Choco Taco. And that's what kicked it off. Right. And I, I bring it up because it is a great uh, example of how food media has changed and also how outside of like New York or whatever there we need to like look at the way stories are broken. And like Dennis, who writes an incredible Substack, and I, I link to it often in the Taste Friday newsletter. And Dennis is great. It's like just this is how it happens. I wasn't I didn't mean to be cynical about it. I just thought maybe they twisted it a li- little bit. I'm sure they, like, once it took off, I mean, that's the kind of PR that money can't buy, right? Like, it would be ridiculous for them to not take some advantage of it and, like, hold some great, like, national funeral for the Choco Taco. But I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like they probably, not to be, like, corporatist, but they probably were, you know, winding it down for a reason. Like, Mm -hmm. the demand might have been. Yeah, or, or, you know, they could better use the machinery in the ice cream factory to, like, make a paleta or something like that. And... I don't know. I think, like, I love Choco Tacos, but I love them more in nostalgia than in reality. And I think that's the case for a lot of us with a lot of these foods. You know my favorite Choco Taco fact, which is not a real fact? Hmm. So I have this old friend, Meredith, who is a genius, kind of like Dennis. And she went through this phase many, many, many years ago, over a decade, where she was, like, really into what she called benevolent lying. (laughs) And she decided that she was going to try to spread this rumor. And it ended up being shockingly successful that... The inventor of the Choco Taco was Regis Philbin. So she seeded it online. This is like some Russia Facebook shit. Yeah. It feels it, a little bit. I mean, it's a plausible fact. If I was like, did you Definitely. know, Matt, like, you know, the craziest thing about the Choco Taco is Regis Philbin invented it. Oh, yeah, totally. He was a Southern California newscaster. And he like, of course, like yeah. had a side hustle. And he you know used his celebrity to, to pump it up. And he bought out, you know, you could. It is a totally forever. plausible fact. Yeah. And I love it. And I. In my heart, that is the truth of the Choco Taco, is that, like, you know, the sun has set on Regis Philbin's most that, beautiful let's, sun. Let's live that truth. Um, but, yeah, food is stupid. That's a great uh, Substack to subscribe to, and I'll definitely link to it again. Okay, I want to talk about the fall cookbook season because you write uh, typically write a year-end uh, review uh, or look at the, the season. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're in Penguin Random House, and we publish a lot of great cookbooks. But we talk about the world of cookbooks, not just Penguin Randall House, of course. And and I wanted to get your take on some of the, the books that you really enjoy. Oh, man. This has been a really good year for cookbooks. And, uh, like, no offense to other years, but, like, I feel like the last couple of years, maybe it's the pandemic, maybe it's the world. I don't know. But, like, like this year I feel like we are back, baby. 21 was tough because it definitely the pandemic and the, the oh shit moment of 20 early 2020 just like really shut down a lot yeah. of things when those it, it was a those authors those 2020 authors oof, oh my god they, they are owed like new book tours new book parties like i i believe that they should absolutely get that but i like, know we we put our book out earlier this year and it was in february and it was ugh, yeah it was sad but it's so hard right it's like tough. trying to like you know shout in a soundproofed room or something yeah. it's just like really heartbreaking but like this year it is Oh, my God. Like, I feel like my, my like, you know, my will to live has been revived or something. There's yeah. so many good cookbooks. And they're on so many different vibes in such interesting ways. And, like, you know, a couple of my favorites, which could not be more different from one another, are um, Chinese Vegan Cuisine by Hannah Che, which is just this gorgeous cookbook that's, like, recipes that are rooted in China's, like, multi-thousand-year history of vegan cooking, some of which have really modern and fresh twists on them, but but 
many of which, I mean, it's almost like a work of historiography, but like very, very cookable. And these like incredibly beautiful recipes for things to do with tofu and, you know, rice and bean curd, but also just like how to work with vegetables mm-hmm. in ways that are both approachable and like mind-blowingly fresh for somebody like me who didn't grow up with the Chinese cooking tradition. Um, and then on the other hand, you have something like um, the Turkey and the Wolf Cookbook, mm-hmm. which I think is just the funnest book by Mason Hereford, and it's you know based on the restaurant in New Orleans, this incredible sort of high gourmet stoner sandwich shop. And the book is just so fun to read yeah. and so fun to cook from. And it's stoner food without being stupid. Absolutely agree. It's like really technical, and his food has always been delicious IRL. J.J. Good wrote it with him. Yeah. He's an amazing collaborator and friend of tastes. So I feel like it's a really, really, really strong book. I like that you picked that one. Yeah, no, I mean, I think like between and between those two, there's like an ocean of incredible titles. But I feel like, you know, on one hand, we have one that's like, like vegan Chinese cooking is incredibly personal. She like roots it in her family and her own life and like her sort of exploration of her heritage. And on the other hand, Turkey and the Wolf is also personal, right? Like it's yeah. written in the first person. It's like about opening the restaurant, but it's like really like a party cookbook. Yeah. And I... I don't know. It's great. Well, thank you for sharing two of your picks. We will uh, definitely link to your um, your article when it comes out eventually, I'm sure, at the end of the year time. Yeah, at some point. At some point. Okay, so you did – you say you're, you're pregnant. You're, you're about to have your I, I am. I, I don't <laughs> – yes. If you don't believe me, I don't know. I'll send you an ultrasound. Okay, no. People don't believe you? No, you just said you say you're pregnant. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> allegedly, I, allegedly you are carrying well, a you, child. Well, you, I didn't want it to be centered around <laughs> your, your pregnancy because honestly, this is your personal life and I didn't want you to be, I didn't want to like actually be rude and dive into your personal life. Oh, no, I'm fine. But um, so yeah, you are unequivocally pregnant. <laughs> we talked, just talked about For the, now. the glass of wine. But I would like to talk about, uh, you know, this new human being that's coming into the world. Oh, yeah. It's weird. Yeah, so let's first talk about life before that human being comes into the world. Have you been going on like a little restaurant tour? I have actually, yeah. Um, I um, unfortunately came down with a pretty horrific case of COVID about a month and a half ago. And the upside of that is I'm now like robustly full of antibodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, Jim, my husband, and I have, have been going out I don't know, like three or four nights a week for the last couple of weeks, like mm-hmm. to restaurants, to parties. I, I am really tired. I am large yeah. and exhausted. But it turns out that going to a restaurant is fine. Like I can sit in a chair and eat food and as long as it's early enough at night. But um, yeah, we've really been like running through a kind of a greatest hits. We realized we have like, you know, maybe at most three weeks before we are no longer a childless <laughs> couple in New York City. Wow. And uh, so, you know, I think I mentioned we went to La Roque. We went to um, Place de Fete in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which I think is, like, so spectacular. Um, recently, we went to a dinner that was a collab between two of my incredible favorites. There's this restaurant in Crown Heights called Aggie's Counter, which is this beautiful sort of, like, modern Hungarian queer-owned restaurant. And it's, like, so terrific. And um, then Jessica and Trina Quinn, who do the pop-up Dacha 46, yeah. were cooking there, doing a special menu. And we went, it was just, like— you know, we're trying to, like, eat as much of the city as we can, both physically and metaphorically. No, and, and it's really nice that you had this opportunity with COVID and, and you kind of don't have that pressure of having to eat outside or you can kind of have that last lap. Dacha 40, Daca 46? 
They're great. I feel like I have heard about them everywhere. What's the story? I've 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 wanted to attend, but I don't know. So they're much. they don't have a, a location. They they occasionally will sort of settle in somewhere for an extended pop up. Like over the summer, they yeah. were in the Dynamite Shop, which is uh, in South Slope. But basically, they're this um, two cooks. They're married to each other, Jessica and Trina, and they cook really unbelievably beautiful kind of modernized but also deeply rooted in tradition interpretations of Eastern European, mostly Jewish Eastern European food, but like really like, you know, like Ukrainian and Latvian and they're doing like pelmeni. They do yeah. um, herring in a fur coat, which is one of those like classic mm-hmm. like layered salads where there's like chopped up beet and chopped up oh, herring. Oh, I love that dish. It's incredibly That's an gorgeous. That's favorite. I remember yes. she loves that And one. what they call it, they call it herring in a denim jacket because oh, they're yeah. like making it a little cool. And it's just oh, and their desserts at my fortieth birthday. Speaking of turning forty, um, <laughs> I my favorite cake in the world is this sort of hazelnut dequoise that they make, and and my husband got me that cake as a present, and it's just like oh, their food is unreal, and you know it's worth following them on Instagram and figuring out where they're popping up, and yeah. like my freezer is full of their frozen palmini. Oh, like, getting ready for oh, it. Oh yeah, like let's talk about cake as a gift. What a great gift. I feel like we sometimes forget about that. Like, they're costly. We should be paying for cakes because they're quite involved and obviously prices for everything is going up. Giving a cake as a gift. My goodness. Yeah. I think that's like a great idea. I think more people should give cakes as gifts. Absolutely. I feel the Quarter Sheets crew in L.A., like, and now she's not really taking cake orders anymore, Hannah Ziskin. So I'm I'm I feel like that's it's almost like if you can get like a rare cake. Yeah. It's almost like a drop or something. I don't know. Oh no, totally. A hundred percent. And I feel like, you know, there's like the like the Instagram cakes, like the cool ones, like cakes for sport. Yes. And there's sort of like jolie laid, like ugly cakes. Like there's so <laughs> much that Yeah. And I also think it's just like a really cool way. You know, if somebody has a favorite restaurant, I've always thought that like a really perfect gift, like a my favorite wedding gift to give someone is the cookbook of a certain restaurant plus a gift card to that yep. restaurant to be like, you know, here's like, you know, an experience for you. And I think, you know, you can call up a restaurant and be like, hey, like, I love this dessert or my friend loves this dessert of yours. Can you make me a big one? Mm-hmm. There is no better gift on earth than like rolling into someone's home with like an entire, you know, flourless chocolate cake or like, you know, weird gigantic entremet or some yeah. something. I mean, like, oh, Banana pudding, yes, a tray of it, a bucket, sugar sweet sunshine. Yes, like a whole bucket of banana pudding, or like some gorgeous. Like, have um, have you been to Lise? I have a reservation in two weeks, so I'm, I'm, I'm dying wait. to go. Yeah, I mean, I follow them on Instagram, yep. and these are the most gorgeous looking desserts I've ever yeah. seen in my Lise's entire life. Lise is great, Korean uh, chef. I'm forgetting her name right now. Uh, check it out on, on Instagram. But reservations on Resi, you can get like three or four courses. You can get a la carte. It's a really special place. And they're exquisite. I mean, she's a corn dessert that looks like <laughs> an ear of corn, but not in a stupid way, like in an <laughs> unbearably elegant yeah, way. Gorgeous food. Um, so the second question about uh, your child is... Uh, My unborn child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what are you looking forward to teaching your child about food? What, is there something I know you're you're probably thinking about the future now, and is there something? So, not to get too, I don't know, deep about this, but on one level, it's still all very abstract to me. Being pregnant has been really fascinating and really cool, and surprisingly, way more wonderful than I was expecting it to be. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a parent. Like I, I basically feel like I have a handle now on what it's like to be pregnant, but I have no clue what it is like to be a parent. And 
the one thing I do feel very confident about is any plans that I make will be at best hypothetical. You know, I think that for a long time, there have been a handful of folks that I've followed on Instagram and on other platforms who are all about this concept of sort of value-neutral eating, um, mostly targeted at parents, but I found it very Mm -hmm. helpful for myself, right? Like to think about food as something that this is sort of related to like intuitive eating and things like that, to think about food as something that, you know, is not a moral object, right? Like a dessert is not full of guilt. Vegetables are not morally better, right? Like food is food. It's fuel. It's pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is really important, you know, I especially think like as a woman, but I think that everybody of every gender grows up in this culture that really moralizes the way that food expresses itself as the body, right? Like thinness versus fatness, health versus unhealth, like fitness versus unfitness. And that's really damaging. And I think that one of the things that I like about myself and one of the things that I like about my job as a food writer, and this isn't something that came supernaturally to me. This is something that I had to work at at a really long time, is that I love food and I think I've done a really good job of divorcing myself from moralizing about food over the years. I've done a lot of like deprogramming myself from diet culture. And uh, I think that like if I can pass that on to my kid, I think I will have done a really, really good thing. You've thought about this, Helen. I, I thanks for sharing that because I think morally neutral eating is something that's new to me in terms of articulating that way. But I kind of know the concept um, and having lots of kids in my life and, and having parents um, not place labels on courses even. Yeah, or- yeah, yeah. Serving dessert alongside the the main course is like a big thing on like on like toddler and toddler eating Instagram. That's I was going to ask you about like kind of getting out of that that formal paradigm of like dessert comes last as a treat or, or celebration or even a reward. Yeah. Do you think about dessert as like just part, the same, you, like the level plane as vegetables? I mean. Look, obviously like, you know, there's various levels of like nutritional density. But I think, I, I do believe very strongly that the word healthy, specifically the word healthy yeah. is the most empty term. Like, you know, if you're looking for something to be low calorie, then the lowest calorie thing is going to be the thing that's healthy to you. If you're looking for something that's like nutritionally dense, then you're going to want like, you know, heavy cream instead of skim milk. I mean, I think that there's such an infinity of vectors about Mm -hmm. why you might want to choose one food over another for reasons related to taste, to your body, to your physical needs, to your social needs, your emotional needs, whatever it might be. But I think that like, you know, obviously an Oreo cookie and a carrot stick do different things. But one of those things is not better than the other, right? Like if I eat, you know, especially if we're doing it like by volume or by weight, like, you know, 100 grams of carrot stick is not going to fuel you the way 100 grams of Oreo is going to fuel you. Like fat is fuel. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, like sometimes you want something crunchy or you want something watery or you feel like you need more beta carotene in your life or whatever it might be. I mean, like I think as an adult – it is very different to sort of understand that we have something sweet at the end of the meal for like historical reasons related to like Escoffier and French cuisine and the way that our body processes like, you know, a digestif and helps us shut down our digestion and stuff like that. When you're a kid, you receive what is given to you. Mm-hmm. And that's both the physical foods and also the emotions and intensities that are surrounding it. And I think that one of the best things that parents can strive for, and I don't say this as a potential parent, I say this as a former child. I think one of the best things that parents can strive for is to present things to their kids in a way where the kids don't read more into it than is meant to be there. Yes. 
Good advice. Do you plan to get into restaurants a little bit earlier than than maybe some? Because I know some parents, like, you know, avoid it until, like, age two or three. I definitely have fantasies of, like, you know, rolling into my local restaurants with my, like, you know, infant child's. Yeah, exactly. Like, strapped to my body. I think it depends on what kind of kid I have. Like, I don't want to be that jerk who's there with a screaming baby. But if I have a chill baby, I am absolutely taking them out as much as I can. It's all hypothetical, too, of course. And and thank you for being a good sport with these questions about about the, uh, the child. Driving. The child. <laughs> I love. I'm just. I'm. I'm just leaning into these like phrasing of the child. No, I love it. I'm just I love not gendering. I'm trying to like. You no, know, no, it's totally cool. I'm trying to make it as you know journalistic as possible, <laughs> or whatever that word is. Have you got any really cute baby books yet? Any cool? I mean, food baby books like cute. Yeah, some friends. Uh, my friend Rebecca or my friend Rachel got me this really cool. Um, these two board books that are like recipes in oh. board book form. Oh. How to make a taco and how to make ramen. And they're adorable. I can't wait to go through those with my with my future child. I also feel like I I feel like I'm very judgmental, but like I don't want to have like a foodie kid, you know, <laughs> like I'm putting quotes around that. Yeah. Like I think that like there's something a little precious about these sort of slightly adultified, like look at my three year old whose favorite food is uni kind of mm-hmm. situations. Like also that child is like wearing a fedora or something. I mean, there's something a little <laughs> too like New it's York lonely a, boy about it's it. Such a, yeah, exactly. It's such a, a energy from New York or San Francisco. <laughs> but um but yeah, you know, like I eat pretty adventurously at home. Like we, I, I, I very much believe that like being limited to like the sort of traditional foods of the kids' menu is is an unnecessary limitation. Oh, but at the same time, I love chicken nuggets. So like sometimes we're gonna have chicken nuggets, and sometimes we're gonna have slow roasted duck, mm-hmm. and that's just what life it's is gonna be. Gonna, it's what's gonna be on the menu. Yeah, is gonna be served. Okay, a couple more questions. I always want to tap in with folks like you, journalists, um, to talk about your peers. Are you reading anybody uh, right now, uh, either in short form or long form, medium form, who you, who we should be reading? I, I just I have to give you that opportunity to maybe n- mention a couple names. Oh yeah, I just finished reading through Ruby Tando's new cookbook. Oh right. Um, I just think she's a genius. I think that the work that she does, I love her articles. I love her books. I love you know the way that she approaches food is so generous and also so intellectually rigorous at the same time. I think there's something incredibly accessible about – so her whole thing um, is that everybody eats. And so we should – kind of like we were just talking about, we shouldn't really attach like morality to food. You should like – her newest book is Cook Where You Are Mm -hmm. or something like that. And um, it's it's just this idea of like – it's okay. I mean there's a chapter called like easy meals for when you don't have the time or the energy – and I feel like that's such a wonderful way of phrasing it, right? That's not the entire book. Like, the book is full of chapters that, again, like, meet you where you are. Like, mm-hmm. what do you want to be doing? And the way that she thinks about what food is as, like, the fuel of us as people, but also the fuel of us as communities and cultures is just really brilliant. Um, and I found that just incredibly wonderful. Yeah, you should read Ruby. And I, I like uh, the the fact that, you know, we're going to meet the the reader where there are and like the idea of like snarking on semi hold made is like so passe and just like semi hold made like it works right it works it works like I don't like I don't want to be a like a, a moral relativist about food and say like anything is anything you're not but like you're opinionated well yeah but I also you know to bring it back a little bit to like pregnancy and stuff there's this big debate that's like infinitely raging about formula versus breastfeeding yeah and I feel like culturally if you read there's an incredible piece in in New York Magazine a couple weeks ago um about the kind of 
the world of startup formulas. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there hasn't been a lot of innovation in, in the world of infant formula in decades and decades and decades. And there's two companies that are kind of trying to disrupt formula. Yeah, with a big shortage too. Yeah, Probably right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so this piece is like, you know, a little bit of a like, you know, startup Silicon Valley story, but it's also about the history of formula, which is also in many ways the history of the way that some of these companies like Nestle um, basically have manipulated, and we're talking here in like the 40s and 50s, like manipulated American mothers, and they also do this to this very day in the third world, and it's really screwed up, um, to believe that formula is superior to breast milk in order to get mothers attached to this. Like, if you switch from breast milk to formula, your milk supply in your body dries up. You have to continue feeding formula forever. So, like, once you get someone to stop breastfeeding, you have a customer for years. And um, anyway, the, the the reason I bring this up is because the there's this group called La Leche League that kind of rose up decades ago kind of in response to the push for formula to bring back breastfeeding. And they had the slogan, breast is best. Mm. And the new kind of rallying cry, which I think is very much in keeping with, like, Morally neutral food and what I like about Ruby Tando's writing is fed is best. Oh, okay. It kind of flipped it that way. Yeah. And it's like, you know, some people can't breastfeed. Some people don't want to breastfeed. Some people are adoptive parents or like might not have the like physical equipment to breastfeed Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Like if you can breastfeed and you want to breastfeed, that's awesome. And if you can't or don't want to, that is awesome too. What's important is that you feed your baby. Yeah. And I think that kind of like. Neutrality and acceptance is exactly what gets us where we want to go. Helen, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast. There was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you have unlimited time, no deadline, or without the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. What would that book be? Oh, it would be like a 600-page literary investigation into the Italian sub. Okay there. Like, there are so many ingredients, and they all have so many stories behind them. And I've been thinking a lot lately about the importance of air as an ingredient in Mm. cold-cut sandwiches. I think that, like, when things are super thinly sliced, you end up getting, uh, like, a sort of aerated experience, and I think that really elevates it. Like, I have a lot of big thoughts. I feel like almost like a – like, just this side of insufferable, kind (laughs) of David Foster Wallacey, like, this Mm -hmm. is actually an art book. So it's, like, under eight – it's like between six and eight hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like I don't want to go too crazy. And I like fully illustrated and like I yeah. guess you know how the Franklin Barbecue Cookbook, which is in, to my mind one of the greatest cookbooks of all time, yeah. is essentially a two hundred and fifty page recipe one for recipe. brisket, right? Yep. Like I want to do like a, a three to four hundred page recipe for the perfect Italian. sub. The Italian sub is the pony, and that's I mean between bread and cold cuts and the agriculture on the produce and that yeah. kind of. Helen, you gonna do it? I don't know. You you work for a book publisher. Like, do you have a contract? We have some. Somebody edi- call me. Some editors listening in. We, yeah. we have a lot of editors who subscribe to our newsletter. Yeah, I'm about to have several months of parental leave where I clearly will have nothing to do. Like, it's Literally, not like newborns right. are a lot of work. <laughs> I can write a book. Will you come back sooner than four years? Yes. I, I, I hope to have you back yes. in a year. I want to be the Steve Martin of the taste You podcast. are. You're going to get that, uh, the, the, the version of a jacket, which is going to be a whisk with some kind of decoration on it. I don't know what it's going to be. I look forward to that. Helen Rosner, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>